and girls, and welcome to a brand new episode of Avant-Garde Book Storytime. Today, I will be reading chapter 19 of Mrs. Frisbee and the Wrath of Nim, written by Robert C. O'Brien and illustrated by Zena Bernstein. If you have this book, feel free to follow along. If you don't, it's quite okay. Get in a very comfortable place, just get relaxed, and listen quietly to The Boniface Estate. This is chapter 19 of Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. Mrs. Frisbee said, Jonathan and Mr. Ages got the screen open. Yes, Nicodemus said, and without them, I doubt that we could have done it. The steel frame was strong, the bolt was secure, and the wire so stiff we could not have been it enough for one of us to go through. So we were glad they were with us and asked them if they would, after all, like to stay with us. Since there were only two of them, they said they would, for the time being at least. And now began a journey that was to last with some interruptions for almost two years. Parts of it were pleasant. It was a joyful feeling at first just to be free again and to get those laboratory collars off, and parts of it were terrible. I have made notes about all of it, and if the time ever comes when rats publish books of their own, I intend to write a book about it. I would be, it would be a long book full of trouble and danger, too much to tell now. It was in one of those dangerous times that I lost my eye and got the scar you see on my face. But we did have some happy times and some pieces of great good luck, two in particular that helped to explain how we got here and what our plans are now. It was early summer when we got out. We had known that beforehand we could tell by the lateness of the light through the windows, though it was dark when we finally stood on the roof. We had no trouble getting down the side of the building, however. There were downspouts in the corners with plenty of tow holes. We dropped in the screwdriver and the spool of thread into one of them. And a lord, little lord, there was Ivy. We were all good climbers, and there was moonlight to see by. In less than 15 minutes, we were on the ground, staying in the darkest shadows under the bushes. When we could, we sped away from them, not knowing or caring at first what direction we were going. Nobody saw us. During the next few weeks, we lived as we could. We had, in a way, to learn all over again how to get along. For although the world outside the laboratory was the same, we ourselves were different. We were a couple of times reduced to eating from dumps and garbage cans. But knowing how to read, we quickly learned to recognize signs on buildings, groceries, supermarket meats, and vegetables, for instance. Let us know that there was food inside for the taking. And once inside a supermarket at night, there always leave a few lights on. We could even read the signs on the wall directing us to Section 8 for dairy products, cheese, Section 3 for baked goods, and so on. In the country, there were barns and silos stocked with grain and corn and chicken houses full of eggs. Occasionally, we came upon other rats, and a few times we talked with them, but not for long. 
because after just a few words, they would begin to look at us strangely and edge away. Somehow they could tell that we were different. I think we even looked different. Either the diet or the injections at NIM had made us bigger and stronger than other rats. And all the strange rats we saw looked to us surprisingly weak and puny. So we were set apart from even our own kind. It was while we were in the country that we had our first important stroke of luck. We had just about decided after nearly four months of freedom and constant roving to find a place to settle down, if not permanently, at least for the winter. We thought that it should be in the country, but not too far from a town, so that we would have access to grocery stores as well as barns and gardens. It was about this time too that I began to wonder and worry somewhat about the fact that whatever we ate, whatever we needed must always be stolen. Rats had always lived that way, and yet why? I talked to some of the others about this. It was the beginning of a discontent and an idea that kept growing, although slowly. The season was autumn. We were walking one evening down a winding country road. We never walked really on the road, but along the edge, so that we could vanish into the bushes or a ditch if anyone came along. You can imagine that 20 rats and two mice traveling in procession would cause some comment, and we did not want that. As we walked, we reached a very high fence of wrought iron, the kind that looked like rows of black iron spears fastened together with pointed tops, an expensive fence surrounding, surrounding a large estate with a big, expensive-looking house in the middle and well-kept grounds and gardens. We walked along past this fence until we reached a gate. There's nobody living in there, said Justin. How do you know? The gates had locked. And look, dead weeds standing outside of it, not even bent. Nobody's driven, driven in here for a while. The house had a quiet, deserted look. There was a mailbox in front, hanging open, empty. I wonder if we could get in, Jenner said. Why should we? It's a big place. It would have a big pantry, big cupboard, big freezer. If it's empty, as it looks, we turned into the grounds, moving cautiously, and from beneath some bushes, we watched the windows. As dust fell, lights came on in several of them, both upstairs and down. Jenner said, that's supposed to make us think there's someone there. Yes, said Justin, but there isn't. I could see one of the lamps when it came on. There was nobody near it, and they all came on at the same time. Automatic switches to keep burglars away. Well, they're not keeping me away, said Justin. He ran to the house, climbed to one of the window sills, and looked in. He tried another, then he came back. Nobody, he said. So we went in. We found a small window in the back. With a cracked pane, knocked out one corner of the glass, and climbed in. At first we planned just to look for food. We found it, too, enough to last us for a year or more. As Jenner had predicted, there was a big freezer, well-stocked, bread, meat, vegetables, everything, and a whole room full of shelves covered with canned food. The cans baffled us at first, as they had in the grocery stores. We could read what was in them, but we couldn't get it out. Then Arthur found a machine on the kitchen counter. He read the instructions on the side of it. Slide, can, under cutter, and press switch. We tried it. The can turned slowly around in the machine, 
and when we pulled it out, the top had been cut free. I've always, I'll always remember what, what it was, that first can, clam chowder, delicious. After we had eaten, we wandered around the house. It was a rich man's mansion with beautiful furniture and fine rugs and carpeting on the floor. There was a crystal chandelier in the dining room and a big stone fireplace in the living room. But the greatest treasure of all for us was in the study. This was a large rectangular room with a walnut paneling, a walnut desk, leather chairs, and walls lined to the ceiling with books, thousands of books, about every subject you could think of. There were shelves of paperbacks, there were encyclopedias, histories, novels, philosophies, and textbooks of physics, chemistry, electrical engineering, and others, more than I can name. Luckily, there was even one of those small ladders on wheels they use in some libraries to get to the top shelves. Well, we fell on those books with even more appetite than on the food, and in the end, we moved into the house and stayed all winter. We could do that, it turned out, without much fear of discovery. We learned that from some newspaper cuttings I found on the desk in the study, they were about a wedding and most of them showed pictures of a newly married couple leaving a house to begin their honeymoon. The groom was Mr. Gordon Boniface, heir to the Gord Stetson fortune, and the house they were leaving was the house we were in. According to the clippings, they were going on a trip all around the world. They were coming back to the Boniface estate in May. Until then, it was our estate. Oh, there was a caretaker gardener who came three times a week, and once in a while he would check in the house in a cart in a corsary sort of way. That is, he would unlock the front door, glance around it to see that everything looked all right, and then lock it and leave. But he didn't live there. He lived in a small house down the road, and we were expecting him when he came. We had figured out from the way the place was kept up, the lawns mowed, leaves raked, gardens weeded, and watered, that there had to be somebody working on it. So we posted a watch, saw him coming, and kept watching him all the time he was there. And we made sure when he looked in the house that everything did look all right. This involved a certain amount of work. We had to haul all our empty tin cans and other trash at night into a hidden place in the woods quite far from the house. We cleaned up after ourselves carefully. We learned to use the water taps and the dusting cloths we found in the kitchen closet. If the caretaker had looked more closely, in fact, he would have seen that the kitchen counters were somewhat shinier than they should have been in an empty house. But he didn't. He never even noticed the small corner of glass missing from the window, back window. And all winter, far into the night, we read books and we practiced writing. Wow, the end, boys and girls. That was chapter 19, The Boniface Estate of Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, one of my favorite children's books, written by Robert C. O'Brien and illustrated by Zena Bernstein in 1971. I hope you're enjoying the story. I will start reading chapter 20 shortly. Have a very good evening. Take care.